Joshua chapter 10. Uh, anybody, I, I thought about multiple movies. Um, this is one that probably is not a spoiler, so just if you haven't seen it, I'm very sorry. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan's um, Sixth Sense. Anybody? Yeah. Some of you are like, I don't watch those movies. Okay, it's okay. Um, significant plot twist, right? Haley Joel Osment, I see dead people. He comes to the end of it and... Bruce Willis is the dead people, right? I mean, like, he's the guy. And so that's the, that's the big thing. And in that moment, even if you saw it coming, in that moment, you're like, oh, right? I mean, just, just this kind of thing where you're like, wow, that was really an unbelievable story. Today, we're looking at Joshua chapter 10 at a really unbelievable story. Like, we're going to come to this moment here in a few verses, and we'll go, wow, man, I, even if I saw it coming, even if I knew the story, wow, that's still such a cool thing. And so... Uh, we've got a lot going on today. I want to try to be as succinct as possible. Um, here in Joshua chapter 10, there's really just kind of two questions that I want to try to explore. One is what exactly happened, and then secondly, what does it mean? The things that happen, what, what do they mean? And so um, work through the first few verses here together. Uh, I'll try to summarize the rest of the chapter um, here in a minute, but let's just talk about what happened first in Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, uh, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he, the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. And so, um, and by the way, if you're, I know we got some pregnant ladies, a couple of you in here. If you're looking for names, this is a great, here's a great list. So Adonai Zedek, there's one of them, uh, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, there's another if you're looking for your kid to get beat up in junior high, uh, to Hoham, king of Hebron, uh, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deborah, king of Eglon, saying this, come up uh, to me uh, and help me and let us strike Gibeon for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. And so the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up uh, with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war uh, against it. So and just note this for just a second, please, before we talk, note this. Twice in the first five verses, he, he rattles off the five kings. Twice. Why? Why would he spend time putting those things down? He wants to make sure that everybody's clear on this fact, that there were five armies in Gibeon. So the odds were five against one. Not good odds in Old Testament world, right? Five armies, one. Typically, this goes very, very poorly. Five armies against one. Five armies against one. Five armies against one. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Uh, and the men of Gibeon, verse 6, uh, sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, uh, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, see if, this, um, if you recognize this, it sounds familiar. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have given them, excuse me, I have given them into your hands. Don't fear them. I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Five against one. 
They call out to Joshua. Joshua, can you come help us? We made this covenant. You said you could keep the covenant. It would be great if you would help us right now. Five against one. And then God speaks to Joshua, and what does he say? Don't fear. Don't fear. Um, I just, I'm trying to emphasize that because I know nobody in here is facing five against one odds in their world, in your life, where something looks huge and big and you're not going to step into this and win it. Like it, it's, it's mind-blowing. I, mean, I know nobody in here is facing that. But just in case you know somebody who might be facing something insurmountable, something tough, something hard to digest and something hard to handle, just in case you know somebody like that, it was five to one, and God said, don't fear, because I got this. I'm just, I wonder if that lands somewhere with you today. God, these odds are so not in my favor. You see this? Don't fear. I got this. But what, what happened? The, the first thing was, Israel, the people of Israel... Uh, they, they kept their word to the Gibeonites. They had made a covenant. You remember from chapter 9, Gibeon had come along. They had deceived Israel. They stepped into a covenant. And even though it was kind of a crummy covenant and a bad deal all the way around, they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. That's all last week's sermon. Um, they kept their covenant because they were going to be people of their word. And because they kept the covenant, we're going to be people of their word. Uh, they, they set out um, to, to do battle. And as they set out to do battle, uh, five against one, it feels like a bad deal. God says, don't fear. Don't fear. Why? Because I got this. I got this. Second thing that happened is that the Israelites marched all night. Look at verse 9. Uh, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Uh, Gilgal's lower. They're going uphill, if you will, uh, 18 to 20 miles, depending upon how you measured it and how exactly the path they took and that kind of thing. And they marched all night. So sun is starting to come up. Dawn is starting to break. People are starting to stir in the camp of the Amorites. And all of a sudden, they're looking at an army around them. Um, God used this hard work of Joshua. God used this um, willingness to sacrifice for Joshua to put them in a position to do what he wanted done. Uh, and then, this is, this is where the plot twist happens. This is where the story gets good. Look at verse 7. Um, I'm sorry, verse 10. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. So they wake up, ah, they're soldiers, and all of a sudden they're in a panic. Uh, they, before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, they were going <clears throat> down the ascent of Beth Haran. The Lord threw down stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Here's the plot twist. And at that time, so sometime in the middle of this, Sometime in the middle of this fight, Joshua takes status here, and he's like, okay, what we need here, what we need is for the sun not to go down. We need to be able to see these people so we can go ahead and finish the job. So what's he do? Verse 12, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. He said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. 
There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Um, So Israelites keep their word. They marched all night to be ready for battle. And then as the battle is going on, Joshua's like, man, if it gets dark, we're not going to finish this job. God, we really need the sun to stand still. And the Lord looks at the sun and goes, hold where you are right there. God made the sun stand still. Now, there are plenty of people in here who are way smart, and I want to recognize that. And, and so your question might be, especially if you're you know, into NASA, NASA world, do you really believe the sun stand, stood still? Here's what I really think happened. I mean, just a plain reading of the text, I think God pushed pause on the entire universe. Like the cosmos, he just went, boop, and it paused it. That's what I think, until Joshua accomplished. That's what I, just, that's what I think. The, the question underlying that, though, is, how do we interact with texts like this? And so I want to take just a second and think with you about how we interact with texts like this. Texts that we don't necessarily understand or, or try to make sense of uh, or, as, or difficult for us to make sense of because of some of the things that we work with on a day-in, day-out basis. Um, and what I want to do is just give you two rails to run on on this thing, okay? Uh, first is truth always points us back to God. Truth always points us back to God. Why? Because all truth is whose truth? It's God's truth, right? God is the one who made it. The biblical worldview is God is out here and he's the one who made it. And inside of him, created inside of him are all of these other things. It's it's, the created world and all the laws and physics and stuff that go with it. Um, All the things that happen, that that God exists outside of those things, and those things exist because he uh, has has put them into place. They're not separate from him. They're not like out there in some, they're, they're existing, if you will, inside of his creative power. So all truth points us back to God. That includes scientific truth. Truth truth is truth, and it always points us uh, back to God. One of the sayings that has been around since I think about the Reformation is that science is the handmaid of theology, meaning that science serves theology in, in this way. It gives us perfectly great reason to stand in awe. Uh, so Scripture says this in Psalm 19.1, The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And the sky is showing forth his handiwork. So all of you space nerds out there, you, you look up at the heavens, and what ought you to see? I mean, physics and orbital mechanics and J2 perturbations and all that stuff that happens. And the glory of God on display. You look and you go, wow. <laughs> that is, wow. Just think that God would do that. It points us. It points us back. Points us back to God. Uh, there are some relationships that people take between kind of um, uh, uh, science and faith that just I would point you away from. One of the relationships I would point you away from is the relationship of fear. Um, science doesn't need to be scared of faith, and faith doesn't need to be scared of science. Oftentimes, that fear is generated uh, when we feel, feel insecure about things like, oh man, if that's really true, then my worldview gets upended. Um, listen, if you're a person of faith in here and science says something that you think is going to upend your worldview, here's what I would just tell you. Um, all truth is God's truth, man. It points us back to God and it helps us to stand in awe of Him and helps us to be more clear about how we can stand in awe of Him. So you need not fear that. If you're a science person and faith makes a claim um, on your life and, and, and about something that happened, how God intervened in the world, then you don't have to fear that either. 
You don't have to fear that either. Like These things can stand the test of time. Insecurity uh, often generates this fear. And when we feel insecure, particularly if we're people of faith, when we feel insecure, we're trying to go looking for science to justify us in some way, uh, and we end up in a really, really bad place. God is the one who justifies us, not science, okay? So um, I'll just give you an example about this passage. How many of you have seen the email come around about NASA finding the missing day? Anybody? Yeah, it's a hoax, like a full-on crock. I mean, like, don't believe it, okay? Um, it was a, a, a myth, and uh, the, the story goes like this. There's a group of people, and they're doing all these calculations, and all these NASA smart people are in the room like, hey, we're missing a day. What happened? The computer's not working anymore. And, oh, well, look, God said there was, you know, the Bible says that there's a day that was missing because the sun stood still for a whole day, and blah, 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 blah. That myth actually started in the 1800s, and just so we're clear about this, NASA was not around in the 1800s, okay? Uh, written first in a book published in 1936 called The Harmony Between Religion and Science, or Science and Religion, Something like that. And then made popular again in a book uh, in 1974. So, I mean, it, this has just been passed around, passed around, passed around, even before the internet stuff got passed around. And just so that everybody's on the same page here, so that we're all clear, trying to be very helpful pastorally, not everything that they put on the internet is true. I know that's a shock to some of you, but I just want you to know that not everything that they put up there is true. When we go looking for stuff like that, it actually invalidates the solidity of our faith because we're worshiping at the altar of science to validate our faith. You don't need science to validate your faith. You got Jesus. He came back from the dead. That's enough validation, folks. So truth always points us back to God. We don't have to live in fear. Uh, neither one of us uh, have to live in fear. So Another relationship I would point you away from is the relationship of anger or rejection, one or the other. Um, and oftentimes this comes from fear, um, but uh, we can live uh, as if we're, you know, just, I don't, I got the Bible, it's all I need, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but the science and, and, and reason, that actually helps us understand this. It helps us understand this. And if you're a person of science in here and not a person of faith, you're listening going, yeah, well, I reject it all. And I'm not, you know, put that away. Here's what I would say to you. Your, your big questions may be how questions. Uh, the big questions that the Bible answers are why questions. And so you may actually discover all the how questions. You still won't have an answer to the why. That's what the, one of the things that the Bible helps with. And so you don't have to reject one or the other. You become... Um, in religious world, we have a, a term called fundamentalist. You become a fundamentalist if you're rejecting one or the other. A, a third relationship, again, I would point you away from is the relationship of separation. Um, and I don't want you to, I'm not saying this is you. I'm saying I have had conversations with people who they've got a faith life and it's kind of right here. And then they've got a work or science life, particularly if they work in the, in the hard sciences, they've got it over here. And so on Sunday, uh, they pick this up and they hold it and they're like, this is good. And then they set it down because Monday's coming and they pick up Monday, they pick up this science life over here and they, they live with this Monday through uh, Friday. And so um, here's what I, the problem with that is Jesus said something like this, that um, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with part of your soul and part of your mind and part of your strength. Was that right? No. How much are you supposed to love the Lord your God with? Oh, all of those. That's right. That's what it was. That's right. All, all of your heart and all of your mind, and all of your soul, and all of your strength. And because he said, you know, love all of God with all of you, um, when we 
dichotomize our life like that. Put those two things uh, separate from one another. And we pick up one and then set it down. Pick up one and set it down. We're not following the very commandment that Jesus said is the most important commandment to follow. So don't do that. Don't, don't live in a relationship of separation between those two. Instead, live in, this, live in this relationship, a relationship of engagement where these voices listen to one another. We can understand the Bible better because of some of the things that we know about the physical world. And you can understand the world in which you live because of the things that the Bible says. Okay, That's an engagement thing. We don't have to fear it. Why? Because all truth points us back to God. The second, that's one rail. The second rail I want you to uh, think about, uh, hopefully, help in understanding passages like this is that God is no deist. Deism is a thing that a lot of our founding fathers actually believed and participated. God kind of creates the natural world order and puts the laws in place and stuff and then spins it up and sends it out there and then he's like, all right, what's next here? Let's just kind of sit back. But, but he's not connected to it. He's, he's just spun it up and sent it out, but it's not necessarily him. Uh, I mean, not necessarily, he's not necessarily watching or caring or participating or anything. That's completely not what the Bible says. Let's be clear about that. The Bible says this, that God um, is, we, we as Christians, followers of Jesus, we believe in direct participation and direct intervention, both of those. Direct participation. Give you a couple of examples here. That God right now, according to Colossians 1, is holding everything together by the word of his power. That's what Colossians 1 says. So we have electrons orbiting protons and neutrons right now because God is holding it together by the word of his power. And if God were to proverbially sneeze, we'd have a big problem. You know what I mean? Like he is decreeing in this moment that everything holds together by the word of his power. That is a direct intervention and direct participate. That is direct participation in this world. Um, secondly, uh, I know, again, a couple of pregnant ladies in here. Uh, Psalm 139, God is knitting babies together right now inside of their mother's womb. Right this second, he's doing that. Just sewing little things on. This is what God's doing. Does that sound like a passive God who's kind of throwing stuff out there and letting stuff happen? That's very intimate language. Very intimate language. God is knitting this together inside of the mother's womb. That's, that's, that is direct participation. Um, further, we said direct participation and intervention. He still works miracles. When God's people pray, man, he still works miracles in people's lives. He still does that. And so because he still works miracles in people's lives, we're looking at it and going, okay, so God, we understand how the word normally works, and then sometimes you step into scenes and you step into situations, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not how that's going to go down this time. That's why we pray. That's why we pray. We want people um, to experience the power of God and see the power of God as his direct intervention. Um, he still executes, as part of his direct intervention, he still executes his purposes for the world, which one day are going to be all summed up into Jesus so that when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Lord, everybody goes, yep, that's the way it's supposed to be. When we talk about direct participation and direct intervention, I can't think of a better thing than Jesus himself, who became a baby, right? Stepped into our physical world participation and then intervened in the brokenness of our world. So God's no deist. 
So truth always points us back to God. That's one rail. And secondly, God has direct participation and intervention. The best response is, is what I, these two things, humble perspective and a winsome confidence. Humble perspective being, hey, we may not necessarily have everything figured out, so I need to stay humble about that. I mean, I believe what I believe, but I, I need to stay humble about that. Um, and uh, it, it's a, you know, if your instinct is, well, I'm not so sure I believe that other stuff. I, I'm just trying to read the Bible and understand it. That's a good instinct. Let me say that's a good instinct. But um, be humble about these things. Like, hold on to them, but be humble. Uh, if, if you're a science person, you're like, ah, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, you know, listen, have you ever noticed that science on occasion rewrites itself? Like Copernicus. That's all I got to say, right? Hey, the earth is the center of the universe. Oh, wait, no, it's not. We make discoveries tomorrow that changes everything that we knew about today. Okay, so be humble about that, a humble perspective, and a winsome confidence. Believe what you believe and hold that belief with confidence, but don't be angry about it. Instead, be winsome about it. Um, you can be certain about the things that you're certain about. Uncertainty, I think, sometimes in our day is an idol, but you can be certain about those things. Just hold them in a way that makes them attractive. And let me just give you a quick example. Uh, some of you know I'm in a doctoral program at this place in Chicago, and um, uh, the very first class that I had was by this like super smart Old Testament scholar, grandpa guy. He was 82, I think, when he taught the course. I mean, awesome. And um, if you can imagine super smart Old Testament scholar and a bunch of pastors in a room, that there might be some lively, engaging conversation, debate, fight. You know, like, I mean, there might be some things that we disagreed about. And there was a point where uh, a few of us took issue with something that he said. And so we were going at it pretty good, not unfriendly or anything. Just, I mean, you know, everybody's pretty passionate about this. We believe what we believe. Uh, confident in what we believe. You put us in a room, we're going to be even more confident. Um, and so he, he just finally looked at us and goes, fellas, let me just tell you something. I'm not sure that when we get to heaven, this is going to matter. But when we do get to heaven, we, we will know who's right. And we won't want to rub it in one another's faces or anything because we'll be in heaven, right? So when we get to heaven, I'll just look at you and wink, and you'll know I was right. <laughs> Best possible comeback ever. You know, I'm like, I'll just look at you and wink. Oh, What is that? That's a confidence that's not angry. The confidence that's winsome, right? That actually is attractive. It draws you closer and goes, hey, I actually want to talk to you some more about this now, now that I see that that's kind of your attitude. Man, do we need some people uh, who have that in these days. Um, lastly, back, back to chapter 10 here and look at verse 11. Um, As they fled before Israel... <clears throat> While they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as the Azekah, uh, and they died. And they were, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Why is that an important detail? Because remember, be faithful and don't be afraid. God said, I've got this. So just everybody's clear that God is the one who's winning the victory here. God is the one who's winning the victory. The rest of the chapter unfolds like this. 
the kings, those five kings that everybody was so scared of in the first few verses, they end up hiding in a cave. And the, the people of Israel throw some stones over the mouth of the cave so they can't escape, essentially imprisoning them. And then after they've taken care of all of their business, sun has stood still for all this time. Uh, they've taken care of all their business. Joshua brings the kings out. He executes them. And then uh, the next day they go after, over the next several days, they go after all of the towns uh, that those kings were uh, uh, the kings of. And then they, that's, this is the rest of chapter 10. Um, and they devote to destruction, as God said, uh, all those things. And so the last thing that happens is God gets victory over his enemies. God is the one who gets victory over his enemies. Um, what does all this mean? That's, that's the kind of thing. Where do we go with this? What does all this mean? And these three things, I just want to point them out to you. Number one, God is determined. He is determined to destroy evil. You look around the world, and, you know, people get in a truck, and a guy gets in a truck, drives through a crowded street, and kills however many people they ended up killing in Nice. You go, God, that's evil. People hijack planes, fly them into buildings. Oh, that's evil. Shoot up nightclubs. Oh, that's evil. News broke this morning. It looks like there was another shooting um, in Baton Rouge. Um, you know, you just look at this and you're like, that's evil. Here's what I promise you. God's not going to tolerate evil forever. He's not. Uh, he's too good for that. He's too good for that. And so if, you're, if your world is, is crazy, like this world is crazy, just know that God's not going to tolerate evil forever. The destruction of evil happens because God was involved. Like he's the one who did it with the hailstones and stuff. But we got to participate. Joshua got to participate in that. So you had both the hailstones and the sword, right? I mean, he's in the middle of destroying this evil people. Oh, I don't like you talking about the Amorites like they were evil. They were evil. They were not nice people. They were wicked people that God had had enough of, and he wiped them out. That's, that's the status of that, okay? So he's stepping in, and he's destroying, he's bringing destruction um, you know, uh, to bear. And you think, well, you know, maybe you don't think, you don't feel sorry for the Amorites. Maybe you're like, oh yeah, go get them, God, you know, good. First Peter says, judgment begins with the household of God. So before you go cheering all of that, just remember where it starts. It starts with us. But God is determined to destroy evil, and He, and he will. He ultimately will. Um, we, we always need God's power uh, to deal with evil, but the good news is we get to participate in His victory. And so what I would say to you is don't, don't sit it out. Don't be a sideline Christian. If you see evil in the world physically, if you see evil in the world morally, if you see evil in the world relationally, you see evil in the world spiritually, um, you see those at work in the world, don't sit out, man. Step up into that. Because you, you will join God in what He's doing in eradicating evil. He's going to destroy evil. You get to be a, participate, uh, a participant in that. It may require sacrifice, but ultimately God, God will do it. Second thing I will tell you is that this, this story means that God has unmatched power. You know, he made the sun stop in the middle of the sky. Who does that? God does. God does. He has a power that's unmatched. I mean, he can make Everest, and then he can move it. Mountains, just right out of the way. He can press pause on the entire cosmos to accomplish his purpose. 
And there's not a thing that you're facing today that is bigger than God's power. Not a thing. Whatever it is that you're staring down, diagnosis, work challenge, uh, relationship problem, um, financial issues, health issues, we could just keep going. There's nothing that you're staring down that is more powerful than God. There's nothing so big that God can't do that. Lastly, what does this mean? It means that God hears us when we pray. Um, Joshua prayed, and when he prayed, God, we need, we need light here. We need the sun to stand still. His prayer was actually in line with, God prom- with God's promise and with his purpose. And so when we li- align ourselves with God's purpose and his promises, uh, why don't we ask for big things? I mean, huge things, like stop the sun, God, like that kind of thing. I mean, of course, those are the kinds of things that we ask big. There, there are times when we think that God's committed to our bright ideas. He's not committed to our bright ideas. He's committed to his purposes. And when we align with him, when we align with his purpose, when we align with his promises, we get the opportunity to ask for big things. Um, you know, w- one of the things that was striking in the passage, is, uh, one of the commentators I was reading uh, pointed this out. <clears throat> you and I, we read the passage here, like at the middle of verse 13. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set about for a whole day. And the guy who wrote Joshua, he just reports that like, oh, this chair is green, this carpet's brown. He just reported that miracle like, oh, well, this is what God did. For you and for me, that's the surprising part, right? Like God stopped the sun. That's not the surprising part, part for, that, for these people. They knew that God had the power to stop the sun. They knew that God could do whatever he wanted to. He's created it. He can do whatever he wants to. That's not the surprising part. Here's the surprising part, verse 14. There's been day, no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Hey, Moses used to go into God's presence and receive instruction from God. Joshua goes into God's presence and is like, hey, God, can you do this for us? And God's like, yeah, you got it. That was the surprising part for them, that God listened to Joshua's prayer and it did something about that. And for you and for me, there is nothing that we can ask of God that is too big. Ephesians 3 verse 20, Paul says this, that God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. How much is immeasurably? Can we be clear about that? Is it like that much? Like, like, no, no, you can't measure how much more he can do uh, than you can ask or even dream or think. And sometimes we waste our prayers on small little prayers because we're praying for the sake of our convenience. And Jesus is like, hey, man, bring big prayers to the table for the sake of the kingdom. That's what we want to do. So we've had this, I know we've used this uh, uh, song, this hymn before. John Newton wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace that we sing. But this is another one that he wrote out of the only hymns. And this is the refrain of this this song. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. I'm coming to a king who's got an abundance of resources and is willing, he's willing, because the king is also my father. If I'm coming to the king, I'm going to ask big. I'm going to ask big. That's a brief example. Um, three or four weeks ago, we, our family has a favorite snow cone place. Snowball Cabana, anybody with me on that? Love Miss Kay. We go up to Snowball Cabana. 
And uh, my second born looks at me, and he goes, hey, Dad, Dad, can I get the medium? Normally, it's the kids, because they have the flat top and they don't spill in the car near as easy, or if we're going to sit around, they'll get the small. He goes, Dad, can I get the medium? I'm like, it's just he and me. I'm like, yeah, why not? Seriously? Whatever you want, son. You want the jumbo one, like 32 ounces of sugar and ice? Get after it, boy. How much? What do you want? What do you want? I want the medium ice cream with the cream on top. Knock yourself out. Tell Miss Kay. So up we go. Cost me an extra dollar. I'm a huge spender. You're welcome for me setting an example for all you dads to follow. Cost me an extra dollar. But he's like, Dad, Dad. And I mean, and it comes out, and Kay did it right. You know, it feels like it's like a bucket of chicken, except snow cone to him. Um, it's just huge to him. He's like eating. Finally, he gets about halfway through. He's like, uh, maybe I should have gotten a small. Uh, <laughs> doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. He asked big because I'm his dad. Some of you are facing things that are a lot less entertaining than snow cone. And you've got a dad who's looking at you going, yeah, just, I can stop the sun. Just ask. I, I, can, I can do this. Just ask. If we can align our hearts with his promises, with his purposes, just ask. Just ask. Those, those three things. He's destroying evil. Unmatched power. And he hears your prayer. That reminds me of something else. Because God looked down on the world and he sees present tense and he saw past tense, the evil that's at work. He saw it. And he sees it on every level, right? I mean, the huge worldwide level. He sees it on the system level. He sees it on the family level. He sees it on the individual level. He sees it on the heart level. And he's looking at this going, oh man, this is not how I designed the world to work. The whole darn thing's broken. And not just broken like, oh, too bad. Like broken like this is evil broken. Like they're doing things against one another and to one another that are evil. Those are things that I've not designed to do. Those things that happen. And yet here they are doing these things. I refuse to let that go on. But instead of coming like he did one time where he just wiped the place out and started over with Noah, instead of coming that way this time, he looks down and he goes, man, I love these people though. How can I let this evil continue in their lives, in their hearts? How can I let the, the resident evil that's taken up inside of them to continue to display itself all throughout the world? How am I going to let that happen? I love these people too much for that. He's committed to the destruction of that evil, but he's going to conquer it a different way. This time, he's, he's going to bring Jesus to the table. And so Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, and because he lived a perfect life, he dies a perfect death as the perfect sacrifice for your sin, for your evil, and for my evil. Sometimes we kind of categorize evil like it's out there. No, no. The evil that Jesus is wanting to deal with is right here. And as he lived, and as he died, and as he sacrificed, he also rose again as the perfect Lord of heaven and earth. And you talk about an unmatched power. He dealt with the two big problems that you and I have. The problem of our sin, he paid for that. 
And the problem of death that comes with it, he, did, he conquered that. He conquered sin on Friday when he died. He conquered death on Sunday when he rose. You talk about an unmatched power. That's an unmatched power. And that God hears our prayers. Jesus is in the business of setting the captives free. He's in the business of helping the blind see. He's in the business of saving the lost. He is determined to destroy evil. And he's conquering it through the death and resurrection of his son. And for everybody who calls on him, he is willing to change their entire eternity because of it. So if you're here this morning, and you've never trusted Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him. That's what I'm pleading for you to do this morning. Call on him. He is committed to working on you and he is committed and has already put his cards on the table. And because he has done so, there is an unmatched power that he is willing to unleash in your life. And he will hear you when you call. And he will save you from your sin. So if you've never done that, and today's the day that you could, there'll be a few of us there at the back. We'd love to talk with you about that. If you're not ready to talk today, maybe you want to set up for later this week on the little flappy portion of your bulletin, check a box on the pack that says, man, I need to know more, what it, uh, more about what it means to follow Christ. You check that box, put your name and phone number down. We'll call you and we'll set up a time. Let me pray and then we'll um, sing a song of response and then we'll have some prayer time for VBS too.